You're listening to a Radio 191 FM podcast. You're tuned in to the R1 News, your stop for news and current affairs on the airwaves, 11 to 12 weekdays here on Radio 191 FM. Te reo irirangi kōtahi. Tēnā koutou i tēnei ata. Kei te whakarunga mai koe ki te reo irirangi kōtahi. Ko Zek toku ingoa. Ko Amiria taku ingoa. And you're listening to the R1 News Show for Ramere, te te kaumārima o Hongongoi on Radio 1, te reo irirangi kōtahi. Coming up on the program, Itanera, Trent Smith from the University of Otago Department of Economics is coming in to talk about modern monetary theory, housing prices and inflation on our weekly segment, Business as Usual. After that, we'll be speaking to protest organiser Georgia Hawthorne from the Octagon-based Roe v. Wade repeal protest, which is set to start tomorrow at 11am. And after that, we'll be speaking with the Otago Disabled Students Association about the campus-wide return to in-person classes during the escalation of COVID-19 and the flu break, uh, outbreak in Aotearoa. Very shortly, we'll have Eileen coming on to do news headlines and weather. But first, we're going to play a new track. This is Heavy Chest with Sunday 926 featuring Benny. You're listening to our news here on Tereo Irirangi Kotahi. Keep it locked. i 
Kia ora koutou, you're listening to the R1 Ramere News Show here on Radio 1, Te Reo Irangi Kotahi. It's currently 11.07, now we have the headlines and weather with from Eileen. The R1 News Headlines. Tēnā koutou, ko Eileen tēnei. The government has unveiled an, a series of new COVID-19 protection measures, but the country is staying at alert level orange. Masks will be given out freely with all rapid antigen tests, and the criteria for accessing antiviral medication Paxlovid, which reduces the risk of hospitalisation due to COVID-19, is being widened by Pharmac. Epidemiologist Michael Baker says free masks is a positive move, but will overall make a small difference. He says masks need to be mandated in most indoor settings to avoid the health system becoming overwhelmed this winter amidst a second wave of COVID and an influenza outbreak. A new study out of the University of Otago suggests the methods used to measure hearts in cardiovascular disease assessment is systematically racist. In Aotearoa, body body surface calculations are used to detect and calculate the risk of cardiovascular diseases. However, body surface calculations are based on research done on white American men, and the new study, focused on Māori and Pacifica men and women, has found ethnic bias in this method. Co-author Professor Gillian Wally says the the body surface method assumes all bodies are the same. However, Māori and Pacifica generally have higher muscle mass. Their research found Māori and Pacifica have, on average, larger hearts than Pākehā but the body surface calculation method did not detect this. As such, Māori and Pacifica may lag behind in cardiovascular disease detection, which Wally called frightening. Cardiovascular disease is one of the leading causes of death in Aotearoa. According to the Ministry of Health, Māori are twice as likely to die of it than non-Māori and 1.5 times more likely to be hospitalised. And those were the headlines on the R1 News. Now, ki te pēhea te āhua o te rangi. How's the weather? The R1 News weather. Otipoti expect a chilly one i with a high of fitu, 7, and a low of fa, 4. Showers throughout the day, falling as snow above 500 metres and southwesterlies. Tomorrow, a high of iwa, 9, is predicted, with a low of toru, 3. But showers overnight and possibly in the morning, will clear to a sunny afternoon, with southwesterlies turning northwesterly after midday. That was the R1 News headlines. Catch up at r1.co.nz forward slash news or find us at Radio 191 FM on Twitter or R1 News NZ on Instagram and tune in to R1 News at 11am on weekdays. Kia ora Eileen for those fantastic uh, headline and weather updates. Coming up on the program we have Trent Smith from the University of Otago's Department of Economics joining us in our weekly business as usual segment to come on and talk about modern monetary theory, the official cash rate and housing prices. But before we get to that we've got no follow through by Wiri Donna. You're listening to the R1 News Show here on Ramere. Take care.
Kia ora, you're listening to the R1 News Show here on Radio 1, Te Reo Irangi Kotaki. That was no follow-through by none other than Wiri Donna, and the time is currently 11.14am. Now we are joined by Trent Smith from the University of Otago's Department of Economics for this week's instalment of Business as Usual on R1 News. Today's edition, we're going to be talking about monetary policy and the OCR, official cash rate, which this week reached a six-year high of 2.5%. We're going to deep dive into the theory behind monetary policy and explore what modern monetary theory is. Kia ora, Trent. How are you going? Hello, Amelia. I'm well, thanks. So with the OCR now being at 2.5%, a six-year high, what does this mean is happening in our economy at the moment? Um, yeah, so, so so the Reserve Bank is doing exactly what it's been, been asked to do. It's the job it's been tasked with is to, uh, um, to manage the business cycle and to um, keep an eye on inflation. And so we have, we're, we're observing high inflation. And so um, um, if you're going to follow sort of the monetarist uh, school of thought, which is, which is what we do here in New Zealand largely, is, is uh, the thing you do when, you, uh, when you're faced with inflation um, um, you, is you you know so prices are rising, you know that means uh, there's um, more demand than supply. I guess is uh, on average is what that means. Um, and so the thing you do is you raise interest rates, uh, and that uh, brings demand down. And that's sort of a um, I don't know it, that's it's a, a very bland way of saying it. But but you know what you're doing is you when you raise the rates is your um, putting the brakes on spending by um, um, uh, by investors, say, right? Suddenly, it's more expensive to borrow money, so um, so fewer businesses and individuals borrow money, uh, and that results in less spending into the economy. So, so, and of course, of course, sorry. So, so of course, the you know one consequence of this, and actually one objective of this, is that um, is that uh, you cause unemployment to rise. Right, that's sort of effectively what we're saying is when you when you've got businesses spending less money into the economy, there's going to be less employment. So so um, uh, people are going to um, find themselves out of work as a result. Why is it that we employ monetary policy through using changing the OCR and things like that? Um, yeah, so there there actually is kind of a long history there. I mean, this was started with um, um, Milton Friedman uh, in the '60s and '70s in the states. Uh, and you know, arguing that um, monetary policy is a better way of doing things, a uh, better way of managing the economy. And if you use, because um, uh, the alternative would for policymakers would be to use fiscal policy, right? So taxing and spending, uh, you know, to to help manage the business cycle. Um, and one one criticism of that is that um, you know it's it's uh, they say well you're picking if you're if you're taxing people and spending money into the economy as a government you're picking winners and losers right um, now it, it, this really bugs me because monetary policy is you're also picking winners and losers if you think about um, who in the economy stands to benefit from the sort of cyclical rising and falling of interest rates uh, it's a pretty small fraction of the economy that, uh, you know, of people in the economy um, that can take advantage of that, right? The people who actually have enough wealth and power to, to be able to borrow uh, large sums of money, um, they're going to just be fine with this sort of um, ups and downs in the interest rate and in the investment cycle. Uh, and it's sort of the rest of us who pay the price with 
periodic levels of uh, high, em- high unemployment and so forth. So what will an OCR of 2.5% mean for mortgage prices and those in the housing market? Um, well, so the, so right, so the OCR is sort of the, the rate at which banks can borrow money, right? So it's not the rate at which you and I can borrow money, but um, and so the, the banks typically, you know, tack a premium onto that uh, to, to, you know, so that they make some profit and cover their cost, the cost of lending. Uh, but you can sort of expect, on average, the um, the um, mortgage rates to go up point for point as the OCR, OCR goes up. And so, yeah, so sorry, so so that's the answer, right? Is that is that you uh, you know higher mortgage rates um, uh, makes uh, makes the value of houses fall, uh, and it makes it uh, harder to buy a house, right? If you were just on the edge of being able to buy a house or not, with higher rates, uh, you you won't you won't be able to. So it's going to be equally hard for you know younger people to still get into the housing market, just in a different way. Yeah, I mean, so a higher higher interest rates causes. Uh, I mean, it actually causes the uh, the cost of a house to fall, um, but it increases the amount the amount you have to pay on your on your mortgage every every month. Uh, so it doesn't it doesn't make houses more affordable. Yeah. And these um, higher mortgage prices should students and those renting expect and uh, this to impact impact renting prices and things like that in the near future well in the in the near future there may not be a big effect on rent um you know know, the biggest the biggest determinant of rent uh, in the short run is probably how much money people have in their pockets uh and and if we're about to head into a recession uh caused by a high ocr uh then people will have less money in their pockets so i wouldn't expect rents to change a lot in the near future um, in the long run, though, what what we're doing here is we're you know we're sort of literally trying to put the brakes on the construction industry, right? That's what high rates will do. A construction industry is is extremely sensitive to interest rate, right? If nobody can borrow money to uh, invest in uh, building buildings, um, the construction activity falls. So in the long run, it's actually it, that would be a reason that uh, rents might rise, right? Because we're uh, we're sort of putting the brakes on the uh, building industry, so in the long run, there's going to be um, housing shortages. Now, with the current inflation levels in Aotearoa, New Zealand, would you say that this uh, could be attributed mostly to either the government spending, or would you attribute it to out, you know outside sources such as the you know the war in Ukraine and uh, you know supply chain uh, constraints? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's exactly the question you want to ask. And, and you, you, and you wanted to talk about modern monetary theory. This is what, exactly what a modern monetary theorist would say. Was it, if you've got an inflation, rather than just using this blunt edge tool of, of, uh, you know, tweaking the OCR, um, what you should do is look very specifically at what's causing the inflation. Uh, right? So, and, you know, and so you have to look at the data and, and which, so inflation means prices are rising, but you know all prices don't rise equally. And so you you can look at the data and and ask what's causing this average uh, on average, right? And so you know we know that the, the inflation we're seeing now is caused by uh, you know cost of housing, uh, energy costs, and food costs. Um, and you know all three of those are. All three of those are global phenomena, right? And yeah, so partly caused by the the war in Ukraine. Um, 
so a lot of this inflation is being handed to us by external factors from, uh, you know, supply chain problems and so forth from overseas. Um, and is or why is it that the Treasury is concerned about the government spending beyond what, or potentially spending beyond what was planned in this year's budget? Would this significantly raise inflation more? Um, yeah, in theory, um, if the government, um, let's see, so uh, in theory, uh, you know, too much spending, just spending money into the uh, economy without taxing it back, um, in theory, that could drive prices up. What the modern monetary theory people would say is that um, you really only, that was they would say, first, like, you should worry about inflation rather than the budget, right? So whether we're in, our budget is in surplus or deficit, it's, in the, in the bigger scheme, it's kind of an arbitrary line, and there's actually not good evidence that that, that, that line has a big, you know, has any particular effect, right? Uh, and so, so modern monetary theorists would say, listen, um, you, should, you should find out what's causing the inflation, uh, do, your, do your best to, uh, to address it. So, you know, in the current situation, we have a tight labor market, for example, um, the you know the government should probably be moving heaven and earth to to um, bring in bring in more workers from overseas. Now, should New Zealanders be concerned by this level of inflation and the government's continual spe- continual spending? Um, the well, so inflation uh, is is well, it's never good, right? There's always someone who's hurt by inflation. Uh, so if the you know the cost of living is going up and your wages don't uh, don't go up by the same in the same proportion, uh, you're going to suffer. Uh, and and so a lot of people suffer when we have uh, when we have inflations. Um, the real but but you know if certain things are becoming more costly because of these you know uh, supply chain problems, uh, in some sense they're good because they cause people to buy less of those things that are in in short supply. Um, but the 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 reason we worry, the reason economists worry about inflation in the bigger scheme, is that um, if it becomes a persistent problem, right? So if if uh, if the inflation isn't just a one-time price price uh, shift, and it sort of um, continues on year after year, you know, because everyone's expecting it, right? So people, when they're negotiating their wages, they they demand uh, a sort of an expectation of inflation, and you know, co- you know, contracts for future delivery might. Uh, anticipate inflation when they're negotiating prices. Um, if you get into that problem, then you can sort of have a never-ending inflation, uh, which, you know, if we agree that inflation is bad and that, you know, when, you're, when your wages don't keep up, then never-ending inflation can be really bad. So that's why the Reserve Bank and, and, uh, is right to take this very seriously, right? So they're trying to be very aggressive uh, with, their, with their rates rises, um, because they want the, the they want the economy to realize, oh, this is just temporary, right? The the, the RBNZ is gonna um, is gonna stop this rise in prices, and so we don't have to worry. We don't have to anticipate the inflation and and cause another one next year. Thanks so much for coming on today, Trent. That was really interesting. My pleasure. Thanks, guys.
That was Trent Smith from the University of Otago Department of Economics for our weekly segment, Business as Usual. It is 26 minutes past 11, and up next on the program, we're going to be speaking with Georgia Hawthorne, organizer of the Roe v. Wade repeal protest, which is set to happen tomorrow at 11 a.m. But in the meantime, here's a song. This is Blood by Revolver. Stay tuned with Awa News on Tereo Irirangi Kotahi.
Kia ora koutou. you're listening to the Ramere Awa News Show here on Radio 1, Te Reo Irangi Kotahi. It is currently 11.31. Last month, the US Supreme Court voted to overturn Roe v. Wade, which is a historic court case which offered those seeking abortions constitutional protections. Despite over 60% of the US public being generally in support of abortion, the conservative-led court repli- repealed Roe v. Wade, and the political aftermath since has been enormous. Protests have erupted around the world, with millions standing up for what they see as an issue of bodily autonomy and a person's right to choose. Now, that fervour has come to Ōtipoti Dunedin, and a protest against the overturning of Roe v. Wade is set to occur tomorrow in the Octagon. Joining us to discuss the event is protest organiser Georgia Hawthorne. Kia ora, Georgia. How are you this morning? Oh, great. Thank you so much for having me. No problem at all. Now, millions have protested the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade uh, internationally and, and domestically. Uh, why do you think we're seeing this amount of backlash? Honestly, I believe it's just the simple answer is that Roe v. Wade is a health issue. Many people on the other side of the debate are trying to frame abortion as a moral or ethical dilemma. However, abortion isn't a choice that people make easily. We need to remember that people have a number of reasons for it, ranging from a fetus developing without life-sustaining organs, sexual assault, or even women that have received IVF and need selective reduction in order to have a healthy pregnancy. And many who are against the Roe v. being overturned would say that without access to safe abortions, many would turn to unsafe options. Would you agree with that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, if we just look at some of the statistics around four pregnancies each year end in abortion, yet approximately 25 million abortions are performed illegally or unsafely, having abortion criminalised, it's just going to make this number go up. Mm. Now, a lot of the people protesting the Supreme Court's decision are saying that the ruling infringes upon the bodily autonomy of abortion seekers. Are these sentiments that you would agree with? Totally. I believe we need to understand that bodily autonomy is at the foundation of both gender equality and basic human rights. We as humans have the right to health and we should have a voice within our own decisions based around our health. Mm. Now, what inspired you to organise a protest here in Ōtipoti? There was a protest in in Tamaki Makoto er, earlier this month, I believe, but what what inspired you to make one, to get one going here? Yeah, well... (laughs) Personally, my parents have always been really big on teaching me to speak up when I see something that I disagree with. We were the kind of family that would get into really heated political debates at the dinner table. So when I heard about the ruling, I just got this heartbreakingly angry emotion. And I just shared these emotions in a group chat with a bunch of my fellow social work students. And it just kind of started to grow from there. Cool. Now, do you have an estimate on how many people will be attending this protest? Um, so according to Facebook, we have about 283 people confirmed to come, but we've had about 845 people express that interest. Cool. Now, how did you find the protest, uh, sorry, the process for organizing this protest? Because um, it was supposed to be scheduled for last week, but unfortunately the weather kind of put a dampener on that. Yeah, it's definitely been an experience for sure. I've never done anything like this personally, and I know a lot of the organizers are in the safe uh, in the same boat, but thankfully, since this issue has been such a hot topic of debate, we've had a lot of help and a lot of support from the local community, which has been amazing. So is the protest going ahead tomorrow regardless of the weather? Yes, regardless of the weather, we're going to be out there. Cool. 
Now, do you think the government here in Aotearoa, New Zealand, are doing enough to safeguard and support people's access to abortions? I can't speak for everyone in the group, but personally, while I am grateful that our current government has made comments about the shocking news of Roe v. Wade, I also think it's important that New Zealand's also had abortions out of the Crime Act for two years. And during that debate period, about 64, I think, percent of the National Party voted against decriminalising it. So we need to be very aware of it and realise that things can change very quickly, as we've seen in America. Mm. Now, Christopher Luxon did say that he would rule out abortions, but do you do you follow this kind of, I guess, his, his claim? I... I would like to think that our current government wouldn't change anything, but... Unfortunately, we're seeing that as the political landscape evolves and changes, there's nothing that we can for sure say that nothing's going to change. Mm. Well, thank you so much for joining us here this morning uh, on Friday to, to talk about such this, uh, this you know complicated issue. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Cool. No worries. Take care. Have a good day. Uh, good day. Thank you. That was Georgia Hawthorne, uh, one of the protest organisers for a octagon-based protest uh, about over the <laughs> over Roe v. Wade being overturned, which is set to happen tomorrow at 11 a.m. Coming up later on the program, we have an interview with a representative from the Otago, uh, Otago Disabled Students Association about the uh, use of in-person teaching on campus amidst a time of raging COVID and flu. But before we get to that interview, we've got Koala's Lament by Lovage. It is currently 11.36 here on R1 News. Take care.
Kia ora, you're listening to Awa News here on Tereo Irangi Kotahi. It is 11.41am and we are now joined by Sean, co-president of the Otago Disabled Students Association to talk about the university's decision to commit to across-the-board in-person learning. This week marks the first week back to classes for students as semester two kicks off here at the University of Otago. The university has opted to return to in-person teaching across campus, while at the same time daily COVID cases has been rising with the South region gaining over a thousand cases in the last 24 hours. The university is urging students that they should wear masks indoors, but is this enough? Uh, Kia ora, Sean, how are you going? Asamare, yeah, I'm good. How are we doing? Good. Um, so we were wondering, how does the ODSA feel about the university starting SEM2 with in-person learning? It's a tricky one because we're representing a very diverse group of students. You know, disability is like far from a monolith, uh, along with lots of other minority communities, and you've got intersections there happening too, right? So it's a tricky one in terms of the definite um, risk with the COVID numbers rise, and you've also got the flu going on in the background. So it can be a scary time on campus for uh, a range of students. But in terms of like touching on that sort of like monolithic idea, you have a lot of students too where um, distance learning didn't really work from them. You know, disability is uh, by nature like a phenomenon that is the interaction between someone's impairment and their environment. And for a lot of people, that online work, uh, learning it wasn't optimal for them. And so what we've got is a situation where we've got the Disability Information Support Service that does do a good job of trying to bridge that gap where students aren't able to make it into person because of either their own concerns for their health or, um, uh, I guess, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, they sort of look to bridge that gap. And then otherwise, perhaps some students which are going to be benefiting from that in-person uh, lecturing. Mm-hmm. Um, does the ODSA sort of see a benefit to a dual learning approach that there was for a lot of papers last semester? Would you have preferred to see more open um, or more of that consideration from the university? Yeah, I think it's a tricky one with being at a collegiate uni, right? Like it is down to those individual lecturers and the Disability Information Support Service that we work quite closely alongside has good relationships with uh, lecturers who are able to try and offer that for individual students based on their uh, disabilities. But yeah, you know, sort of like when the rubber hits the road, it is down to those individual lectures and there's not so much that blanket um, approach. I mean, under the Code of Pastoral Care, we've got the disability action plans that are coming in. Um, and so um, the University of Otago will be working on that with the new VC coming in. We're a little bit more slow than the other universities, which is kind of like anticipated. Um, but I think with that coming in, you will have a lot more of the unconscious bias, which is kind of inherent with anyone that isn't disabled themselves or doesn't work along disabled people uh, being addressed. Mm-hmm. Do you think the university should have consulted the student body on whether classes should be in person or online? Uh, it's something that we actually uh, fed back on as part of um, uh, our sort of consultation with the uni around mandates, um, and it's something that we're definitely uh, in favour of. Um, and I think it's a tricky one because you certainly have some students that aren't aware of the Disability Information Support Service, um, and so it's kind of why it's a great opportunity to sort of get on the airwaves here and make people aware of that support service because it is the best one in the country, is sort of seen as best practice for a lot of other different institutes, um, and so they do a lot with working within the sort of like collegiate confines of uh, I guess what accessible learning can look like Cool um, The university is strongly recommending masks to be worn indoors um, through the email that they sent out to all their students. Should the uni be drawing a harder line on mask usage do you think? I'd love to see them do it personally and I think 
probably the rest of the exec would would sit in a similar kind of position on that at least from conversations we've had but it's a really tricky one you know like how do you go about actually mandating that as a uni you know like is that something that campus watch uh enforce or staff enforce i mean when there were signs up making it look more like a mandate previously you'd have people walking past it without wearing masks so it's a really tricky one to enforce and i think it's one of those that all you can really do is emphasize um social accountability and hope that students consider those that are going to be um more vulnerable i mean you can appreciate the the difficulty there because the sort of uh, rhetoric has become pretty uh, banal around you know mask up you know um, and take those um, uh, take those precautions in particular, I think, for people who have um, had the virus and, you know, have perhaps brushed it off as they are, don't fall into the immunocompromised group. Um, the, yeah, the, the risk is, is probably less uh, severe or, or has probably fallen to the back of their mind. So, yeah, it's um, why well, I'm happy here to, uh, so happy to talk to here today just to remind people that there is a definite risk for um, people. And, you know, there's we've had uh, members that have been in hospital because of it um, and so by masking up, by considering social distancing, if you're symptomatic, getting uh, tested and isolating, those are the members of the student body that you're protecting. The university has said they will support vulnerable students and provide have provided measures to address risk prevented by COVID-19 and the flu, including um, the academic learning support through disability information and support, which will take place over Zoom or with staff wearing N95 masks and things like that. Um, is this enough? for vulnerable students in our community? Uh, I can say that uh, anyone that's already engaged in su- the, with the support um, or from the experience of all of the um, exec members and then other members that we've talked to, like they do provide a fantastic service. Um, and I know that the service uh, are exercising like extreme, uh, extreme uh, caution, like the head of the um, support services yet to contract COVID, which is pretty good going mm-hmm. <laughs> um, at the point that we're at. Um, Beyond that, as far as, you know, uh, like touching back on the, um, I guess, lecture uh, accessibility and premise of being um, uh, on campus with a collegiate structure, there's not much more you can you, you can do. So again, you're working in confines and the support does a great job to work within that, yeah. And students have been critical about the 2022 COVID-19 effect on student learning experiences survey, which was sent out at the end of last semester by the university. Um, there's been suggestions that it was quite biased and shaped to justify return to in-person classes. What does the ODSA think was missing from this survey? Mm, I suppose I, I suppose it's just a case of um, uh, amplifying disabled voice. There, you know, it's a survey that mm-hmm. um, our exec members have uh, filled in, and as a yeah, as a as a minority group, your voice perhaps won't get heard um, to the same degree um, without effective consultation there we're two years onto campus so just really working on building those relationships to make sure that that disabled voice is heard um so perhaps yeah i'd suggest disabled voice to some degree but um like i mentioned we got consultation there on the um mandate side of things and i can have continued communication with the uni about that um and yeah sort of in line with the disability information support service i suppose like we're thrilled with the relationships that we do have as um uh, being part of the national disabled students association None of the um, uh, other um, associations that we worked with were consulted in the first place, so it's, it all starts with that um, relationship and dialogue. So, mm-hmm. Thanks for coming on today. That was Sean, co-president of the Otago Disabled Students Association, talking about the university's uh, start to sem 2 in person. It is 11 minutes to 12. You're listening to R1 News here on Tereo Irirangi Kotahi. This is Lips with I See You Want to Know. <coughs> Thank you.
Kia ora koutou. you're listening to the R1 News on Ramere. It is currently 11.53, and who do we just hear from, Amiria? Uh, we were just talking with Sean from the ODSA about in-person classes and what's happening on Otago campus with mask usage and how we can protect the vulnerable members of our community. Yeah, yeah, Sean Printer, he's um, very consummate consummate gentleman uh what was the song we just heard as well uh we just heard i see you want to know by lips oh legit nice groovy tune it's a very groovy tune um perhaps we should wrap up the show given that uh pretty much run to the end of it eh? yeah we're we're coming to the end of the news for this week yes for the week indeed it's the first week back to semester doesn't quite feel real yeah but it's okay we're all going through it together uh, so, up first on the program, we had Trent Smith from the University of Otago Department of Economics come on and talk about modern monetary theory, inflation, and housing prices, and what the government could be doing to uh, to make life easier on other people, I guess. Yeah, and then we heard from Georgia Hawthorne, who is one of the organisers for the Octagon-based Roe v. Wade repeal protest, um, about what what they're protesting about and what's going to happen tomorrow at 11 a.m. Yeah, so that was pretty much the whole show, eh? Yeah, really interesting stuff. It was fantastic. I can't wait to do it next week. And the week after that. And the week <laughs> after, that, after that. And the week after that. Because the news just keeps coming. It doesn't. It's like a smash, It's like that Smash Mouth song. It doesn't stop coming. <laughs> now, you've been listening to the Awa News uh, here for Ramere. Be sure to tune into Awa News every weekday from 11 a.m. to 12 p.m. And have a great, fantastic weekend. Yeah. Any closing remarks, Amelia? Uh, keep it locked with the one. Yeah, keep it locked with the one. Keep it based. Stay classy. You've been tuned in to the R1 News, weekdays from 11 to 12 here on Radio 1 91FM, Te Reo Irirangi Kotahi. Catch up at r1.co.nz forward slash news or find us at Radio 1 91FM on Twitter or R1 News NZ on Instagram.
That was a Radio 191 FM podcast. You can find more of them at r1.co.nz forward slash podcast.